We're going to read Jeremiah 32, 36 through 44. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good." And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the preaching of it. I pray that the hearts of all of us, your people here, would be built up and strengthened in grace as we consider your great and wonderful promises to your people. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. As I've been working through the book of Jeremiah uh, in anticipation of this passage, I thought, man, this is kind of a dry passage. uh, If you look at the whole chapter, which we're actually going to talk about, that there's a a lot in this about uh, Jeremiah buying a plot of ground. and, And I was... I was thinking, man, it's going to be interesting trying to figure out how this all fits. And then I, I started diving into it again. And about midweek this week, uh, it was like God hit me. Um, it, he just hit me with a ton of bricks and, and made it clear. This passage is front and center in God's new covenant promises. This is a marvelous passage. And I, I pray by the end of our time together, you will agree with me. Um, the passage begins, uh, as far as the historical context, it starts in roughly the year 588 B.C. Zedekiah is king of Judah. He's reigning on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But by the time these events occurred, the city of Jerusalem had already been under siege by Nebuchadnezzar's army, the Chaldean army in a siege that would last a total of 18 months and would end with the destruction of the city and of the temple. So this is is midstream during the siege of Jerusalem. Zedekiah, he has imprisoned Jeremiah, the prophet, in, uh, in a jail inside the king's house. And the reason that he has imprisoned him is because Jeremiah keeps proclaiming that God has said... The city's going to fall, and and Judah will be taken away from from uh, Zedekiah, and Zedekiah himself will get to meet Nebuchadnezzar face to face, and be taken into exile. By the way, that 
the wording that Zedekiah would meet the king face to face comes, becomes very significant a little later. That he would see him with his eyes. Because when it's all done, the last thing that Zedekiah gets to see with his eyes is Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah says to Jeremiah, why do you keep saying that God is going to take this place away from me and give it to the Chaldeans? <laughs> and of course, the answer is obvious. Because that's what God keeps saying. Jeremiah keeps saying it because God keeps saying it. Jeremiah doesn't actually, he doesn't actually justify Zedekiah's ridiculous question with an answer. He just moves on in verse 6 to uh, an interaction between himself, Jeremiah, and God. In verses 6 through 8, God commands Jeremiah to buy a field in the land of promise. <laughs> and this is a very curious situation when you look at the, at the details. Jeremiah's cousin, first God says, your cousin's going to come to you, and his name is Hanamel, and he is going to, he's going to offer you a deal on a piece of land in the town called Anathoth, which was the priestly village that Jeremiah was from. It was about three miles north of Jerusalem, just spitting distance. And we had found out a couple of chapters earlier that the people in the town of Anathoth wanted to kill Jeremiah. So the first question is, would you want to buy, buy property in a city that's filled with people who want to kill you? Probably not. Here's the second piece of the puzzle. On their way to besiege Jerusalem, the Chaldean army had already overtaken the part of Judah in which Anathoth resided. So the city, this guy was trying to sell Jeremiah a piece of property and was already in the hands of the invading army. Does that sound like a good deal to you? Now, I will mention that... that. Uh, that Hanamel makes a really good deal. It makes a really good offer. 17 shekels for a piece of ground. You know how much Solomon paid for one horse in 2 Chronicles chapter 1? 150 shekels of silver. So this is a really good deal. Hanamel knows he doesn't have much to bargain with here. Now, if you get taken away into captivity and you have silver in your possession, silver is kind of universal, has universal purchasing power. But a piece of ground in a city that's already been taken by the enemy has no value whatsoever. That's the deal that was being offered to Jeremiah. And God said, take it. God told Jeremiah to buy that piece of land. You know why? Because God knew that was the best real estate deal ever made. And that's what this passage is about. That's where this passage is headed. And when I realized that, it completely revolutionized my understanding of this passage and of what's going on. It's, it's a beautiful thing. In Jeremiah 32, verses 9 through 15, Jeremiah indeed uh, buys the land. He figures out that God is the one who told him to do this. He told him the guy was going to come. Everything happened just the way he said. God wanted him to buy the land. So he buys the land, and he's very careful to spell out for us that he did everything in such a manner that, that the, the deal was going to be legally binding. He signed, he, he weighs out the silver, he signs the deed, he takes, he takes the, the signed deed along with the, the terms and conditions of the sale that are documented and he, he gives them to Baruch who is like the, 
he's like the court clerk. He's the guy who handles the documents. And Baruch takes the documents of the sale and he puts them in a hermetically sealed jar, quote, so that they will last a long time. So everything's done. The deal's done. And then begins this, this conversation between God and Jeremiah. But just before that, just at the end of the, of the narrative about this, the signing of the deal, Jeremiah says, it's like he's explaining to Baruch, he says, I did this, verse 15, for God says houses and fields will again be bought in this place. Now I gotta say, Jeremiah is saying those words, but he doesn't quite get what's going on yet. And we'll see that to be the case. In verses 16 to 44, there's an extended conversation between Jeremiah and Yahweh. The first part of it, verses 16 to 25, Jeremiah is talking to God. The rest of it, verses 26 to 44, God is talking to Jeremiah. Now let's look at what goes on in this conversation. Starting at verse 16, Jeremiah declares, Yahweh, you are God of all creation. And he says, nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. Remember that. And then he says two things about the character of God. He says, you show unfailing covenant love, steadfast covenant love, and you punish sin. And he's actually quoting from Exodus 34 when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And, and God hid his physical glory with his hand, but he passed by and through in front of Moses and he declared the glory of his character. And he said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, showing loving kindness to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but you will by no means leave sin unpunished. Visiting visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and on the grandsons to the third and fourth generation. And if you look at other renderings of that passage, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate you. In other words, he's not punishing the kids for what the fathers did. He's punishing each generation that persists in that, in that sin. So, Jeremiah acknowledges the two halves of that. You show unfailing covenant love and you deal with sin. Those are very important as the passage proceeds. And so Jeremiah says, okay, now because you're a God who deals with sin... You are taking this place away from us. And you're taking us away from this place. So why, Lord, why have you made me buy a piece of ground in a doomed place? A place indeed in which Jeremiah knew, to which Jeremiah knew that the Judahites were not going to be able to return for 70 years. Because he had been proclaiming that on God's behalf. Why make me buy land in a doomed place? Now, verses 26 to 44, God answers. And the first thing he says is, Jeremiah, you're right. I am the God of everything. I am the God of all flesh. And you're right. Nothing is too difficult for me. And then he says, and also, Jeremiah, you're right about this. I am punishing the sin of my people by taking this place away from them and giving it to Nebuchadnezzar. You've got all that right. And Jeremiah, here's why I told you to to buy land in this place. Because you had the other part right too. I show unfailing covenant love to my people. 
One of those does not contradict the other. Beautiful thing about the simplicity of God is that God is all that He is all the time. And the greatest evidence of that is the cross. You see all of that which God declared to Moses at the cross. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, superabounding in loving kindness and truth, showing loving kindness to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but He will by no means leave sin unpunished. That's why the cross was necessary. Now, God says, okay, you're right. I am the God of all flesh. Nothing's too difficult for me. You're right. I'm punishing my people by taking this place from them. You're right. I show unfailing covenant love for my people. And that's where God goes with the rest of the passage. Here's why I told you, Jeremiah, to buy land in this place. And I'm going to reread for you verses 36 to 44. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. You had that right, Jeremiah. And then he says something that is so stunning in the context of this whole course of events that it must have taken Jeremiah's breath away. He says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in my great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I'll just mention real quickly, it's always good when God's people fear God. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I won't turn away from them and I'll make sure they don't turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and listen to this. This is a marvelous sentence. I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know how many times in the Old Testament God says that He does something with all His heart and all His soul? Once. Right here. You think that should get our attention? I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says Yahweh, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring upon them all the good that I am promising them. And then he says, Jeremiah, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. (laughs) And then he says, men will buy fields. And listen, listen to how this sounds like what just happened. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses. In the land of Benjamin, in the suburbs of Jerusalem, like Anathoth, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares Yahweh. Is that not marvelous? Now I want to show you that what God told Jeremiah to do was not something new in the history of God's people. And I call this section Patriarchs and Portions. A long history of God's people banking on the promised place. 
In Genesis 23, Abraham insists on buying a plot of ground in the promised place in which to bury his wife Sarah, at a place called Hebron by the Oaks of Mamre. The, the owner of the property, Ephron, offers to give the land the piece of ground to Abraham, and Abraham says, no, I'm going to buy it. There'll be a deed. There'll be witnesses. There'll be money transferred. Everyone will know that I own this property. It's legal and binding, even if you die. Genesis 33. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, buys a plot of ground in the promised land in Shechem where he pitches his tent. Genesis 49. Jacob, at the end of his days, finds himself in Egypt, right? Where Joseph has saved Jacob and his family from famine. And they're all in Egypt now. And Jacob Jacob is about to die and he makes his son's promise to bury him in the plot of ground that Abraham bought in the promised place. Genesis 50. Joseph, as he comes to his last days, makes his brother's promise to bury his bones, to bring his bones up from Egypt back to the land whenever God puts them back in the land, and to to bury his bones in that plot of ground that Jacob bought in the promised place. Joshua 24. This is marvelous. Joshua 24, Joshua is wrapping up the whole narrative of the conquest of the land 400 years after, 400, more than 400 years after, Joseph told his brothers, make sure that you bring me back and bury my bones there. After the conquest of the land, Joshua recaps all of it and then he points out that Joseph's, Joseph's bones were indeed brought back and they were buried in the plot of ground in Shechem that Jacob bought in the promised land. In John chapter 4, when Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman at the well, it's called the well of Jacob. And Jesus points out that it's in the piece of ground that Jacob bought in Shechem. The land that became Joseph's portion. And here in Jeremiah 32, God commands Jeremiah to buy a plot of, plot of ground in the promised land. By the way, none of these were big, plot, big chunks of ground. They were little chunks of ground. A long history of God's people banking on the promise of the place. Why? Why is it that God's chosen people keep putting their money on a promise? Especially when most of them don't ever get to spend much time in the place that they bought. Here's why. Because this is absolutely central to God's new covenant. It's because God is going to plant His people with all His heart and with all His soul in His promised place and He is going to dwell with us together in that place forever. That's why the place is important to God's people. Now the place, Jerusalem, that that physical city in Judah, that's a temporary and imperfect manifestation of the fulfillment of this promise. Because when it's all fulfilled, it'll be in the new Jerusalem. Now, I personally believe that, and and you don't have to agree with me on this, but I personally believe that there's going to be a, a millennium, a kingdom in which 
Jesus, maybe a thousand years, maybe more, but I thought, personally, I think it's a thousand years, uh, Revelation 20. But God, I believe Jesus is going to reign in physical Jerusalem on earth for a thousand years. And when, when that kingdom comes about, God is going to regather the Jews back to that land and they're going to dwell there with the promised Messiah. But here's what I know with absolute rock-solid certainty. Whether that happens exactly that way or not, here's what I know. I know that God's people are going to dwell in the place that God has prepared for us with Him spiritually and physically for all eternity. See, God created us for relationship with Himself. We are the pinnacle of His creation. Mankind is. And He created us. He he made this extraordinary universe. And if you look at the magnitude of its of its largeness or the magnitude of its smallness, you just you get lost in it. But guys, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. He made us to be His eternal inheritance. And He declares that He will be our our eternal inheritance. And His intention, His covenant promise to His people is that He will live together in the place that He has set aside for us, that He has prepared for us. And you can bank on that promise. And God intends that you will. God intends for His people to bank on His promise of the place. He says, I will indeed plant them in my place. I will be their God. They will be my people. And then he says, in passage after passage after passage, I will dwell in their midst forever. And in the next chapter, guys, we're going to see that the righteous branch of David, the long-promised king in the line of David, Messiah, Christ, is going to be in that place and He's going to rule in that place over all of His creation. And He's going to be right there with us. And the point of the place is the presence of God with His people. That's the point of the place. I I have to differ with Christians who say the place is unimportant. You know why the place is important? Physical proximity to God. That's why the place is important. Because God created us as spiritual and physical beings and He intends to be with us, among us, in all respects. But the point of the place is the presence of God with His people and of God's people with God. You know what you get to take with you when you leave this earth? Your relationship with God and your relationship with the people of God. That's it. And that's all you'll ever need (laughs) because that's your inheritance. John 14.6, Jesus the night before He was crucified, He said to His disciples whom He said He loved dearly, He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. Why? So that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? (laughs) 
And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. How do we get into the place? Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. The only way to the place is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if you're here today and you think that you have a spot reserved for you in heaven, and you think it's because of something that you've done, you need to seriously think again because God says that's not going to get you there. The only one who will get you there is the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is the theme of the Bible from cover to cover. This promise of God creating a people for His own possession, preparing a place for that people, bringing His people into that place and living with His people in that place for all eternity. That's the central promise of the Bible. And that's what Revelations 3.21 shows us in perfect fulfillment. John says, Behold the tabernacle of God. He says, I saw the, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. And he says, Behold the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men. And He will be their God and they will be His people forever. Beloved, God means for us to bank on that promise. He means for all the things that He puts into our hands to be invested in that promise. That means our money. If you go back and look at these these iterations throughout the Old and New Testament of people investing in the eternal kingdom, they do it with their money. And they do it with their time and they do it with their they do it with their emotion and their every resource that God has given to them. They invest their lives in something that's coming, not in something that they get to lay their hands on right now. Now you and I, if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we already have We already have two parts of that promise. We have blessed relationship with God that nobody can take away from us. And we have the people of God to enjoy God with forever. But God's not finished with the promise until He puts us in the place and lives there with us. Everything that we do in this life is about that promise, beloved. Everything. That's what this is about. I'm going to back up just a little and I won't take much time with this, but the centrality of this promise, I just want to make sure that we're we're kind of really hanging our hats on it. In Genesis 12, verses 1-3, through what did God promise to Abraham? Before his name was Abraham. Three things. Land, seed, blessing. Or to put it differently, Place, people, and blessed relationship with God. Because that's how the blessing promise unfolds. The blessing that would come through Abraham to all the families of the earth. How does that happen? Exactly what we're talking about. God saves sinners and He brings us into His eternal family. 
that promise, land, seed, and blessing, pervades all of the major covenants of the Old Testament and it finds its fulfillment in Revelation 3.21. Place, people, and eternal blessed relationship with God. When you wake up in the morning, is that what you are thinking about investing in? Because that's what this is all about. That's why we're still here, to invest in that. And that's it. Loving Father, thank You for this passage. Uh, there, is, there is just a wealth of beauty here. If we just stop and ponder what You are promising. Father, Your plan for us, it is so marvelous that it completely defines who we are, why we're here, what we are supposed to be doing, and what we should love to do. And we thank You, dear Father, that Your plan is coming about because You delight with all Your heart and with all Your soul in putting the people You have made Yours in the place where You will dwell with us forever. May the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted. We look forward to that day with eager anticipation, Father, and we say come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.